I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Don't forget is a mantra in our shop. Don't forget, especially the characters, the moments, long gone now, that made us. Norman Mailer is the spirit seeker and sometimes reckless truth teller we are unforgetting in this podcast. We're summoning Norman Mailer in his 100th birthday season, what could be his revival time, to tell us what happened to his country and ours. Mailer lived and wrote it all, 40 books of eagle-eyed fiction and fact, first as a soldier in the Philippines in the 1940s, which became his great bestseller at age 25, The Naked and the Dead. Then there was the epic poet of the 60s in America, eventually the celebrity and popular artist of Duke Ellington or Frank Sinatra proportions. Sinatra taught us love songs. Mailer read the maelstrom of our American dream life to us. The premise in the conversation here is that Norman Mailer, 15 years after his death, is still speaking to his country. Certainly to you, John Buffalo Mailer, youngest of seven sons and daughters, co-editor of a Mailer distillation for 2023 titled A Mysterious Country, The Grace and Fragility of American Democracy. In a few words, John. He was so prescient, and it may just be that it's taken 100 years for the rest of us to catch up to his Mm. mind. Co-editor Michael Lennon, what's new for you here? since your own celebrated biography of Norman Mailer a decade ago. Norman's biggest fear was that the country was going to devolve in anarchy and chaos because it was polarized. And indeed, we are probably more polarized now than at any time in the history of the country, maybe going back to the Civil War. A signature line from your dad, John Buffalo? It always goes back to, there is that law of life, so cruel and so just that one must grow or else pay more for remaining the same. And we put it on his tombstone, which is also my mother's tombstone, because out of all of his incredible lines that he wrote, I've never met any kind of person that that doesn't resonate with. Michael Lennon, the short form? The part of him that really functioned as an artist was as an observer. And observing American politics was Mm. something that I don't know of anybody, you'd have to go back to somebody like Mencken, who Mm. observed American politics, uh, Henry Adams, uh, as shrewdly as did Norman Mailer. My favorite Mailer, I gotta say, is an essay he wrote for Esquire in 1960 called Superman at the Supermarket, his first venture into presidential politics. It included this. Since the First World War, Americans have been leading a double life and our history has moved on two rivers, one visible, the other underground. There has been the history of politics, which is concrete, factual, practical, and unbelievably dull, if not for the consequences of the actions of some of these men. And there is a subterranean river of untapped, ferocious, lonely, and romantic desires. That concentration of ecstasy and violence, which is the dream life of the nation. Nobody writes like that anymore, but then I'm reminded, nobody wrote like that then either. And of course, JFK, nominated at that convention, was Mailer's fulcrum, so to speak, to the future. He writes this, Yes, this candidate, for all his record, his good, sound, conventional, liberal record, has a patina of that other life, the second American life, the long electric night 
with the fires of neon leading down the highway to the murmur of jazz. Here was Mailer in his own voice, cheeky, competitive, quietly hilarious. He's reading from Armies of the Night, a breakthrough book about the mass protest at the Pentagon, October 67, against the war in Vietnam. In this scene, Mailer is having drinks with the poet Robert Lowell and his wife on the eve. You know, Norman, said Lowell in his fondest voice, Elizabeth and I really think you are the finest journalist in America. Well, Cal, said Mailer, using Lowell's nickname for the first time, there are days when I think of myself as being the best writer in America. I want to mention a different category, a different Mailer point that I treasure. And it's that when he speaks about almost anything, Vietnam, say, he speaks about spiritual dimensions. That's very rare in journalism, eh, but also in serious intellectual life in this country. About Vietnam, he said it was a disaster, comma, spiritually. The strategic blunder, the numbers of the dead, we know. But who else speaks about the spiritual price? Norman Mailer would be speaking today about the spiritual ache, I think, and dread and fear in almost any corner of American life you look at. He was a theologian with a novelist's eye, or maybe the opposite. He was a novelist with a theologian's eye. Part of the question I want to hear from you guys about is, what would he say is happening in America now? Well, what would he say about America now? Well, I think the first thing he would look at would be the, the whole question of relations between blacks and white. He believed that this was the most serious problem that was threatening the future of the republic. He said it many times, going back to the 1950s. He never stopped saying it. And now, after the Black Lives Matter movement, after uh, our first black vice president, so many changes going on in the country as far as the relations between blacks and whites, the reparation movement, the 1619 project, all of that stuff, this would all be music to his ears that these things were happening, that there was real change. It wasn't slow. It wasn't grudging. There were real actions going on. Is it enough? No, but it's a good start, and I think he would be very pleased with that. John? Also, he would, uh, almost like Cassandra, have been railing against technology and plastic all his life. And, you know, now we live in a world where we get our information from echo chambers that only reinforce what we think we already know. We don't listen to the other side. We don't try to understand where the other side's coming from. It's offensive to even suggest that one could be in the center and have Republican and Democratic friends these days. So that is, you know, anathema to a healthy democracy in every way. And he would say, I've been trying to tell you people this for decades look how bad it's gotten, and technology has amplified it and made it worse. Yeah, in the news these days, chatbots that can write, sooner or later they will be able to write war novels, I think. How many times since the invention of the atom bomb have the people who are putting out a new technology in the form of AI been terrified of what the repercussions are going to be around the world and yet are doing it anyway, as if they must? The people I know who are on the cutting edge of this stuff are absolutely terrified of what they are currently unleashing into the world because they have no idea what it's going to do. Like gene editing. He did a lot of collaborations with a gentleman named Larry Schiller. He did the Executioner's song and he did... Marilyn Monroe? 
Marilyn Monroe as well. And uh, when he was pretty close to the end in the hospital, Norman was getting these great visions. And Larry came to visit him. Larry was there quite a bit. And uh, Norman looks at Larry when he wakes up and he says, Larry, I had a dream. I'm God and you're the devil. And we've made a pact to fight technology. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. He believed in God and he believed in the devil. He did. Active powers in the world. On the technological point, he got to it in a funny note I have here. He was writing about Robert Kennedy, whom he supported for president in 1968, because Kennedy, he thought, had grown more in 10 years than any man in American political life. And he thought the country could grow with Robert Kennedy, and American life might be, therefore, more adventurous and more responsible, he wrote. That is a magical paradox, he said, but the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy is not without that magic. And without magic, American life, he said, might yet prove to be nothing but a preparation for living in the endless automated corridors of a super-technological society. Mm. Great quote. Miller was adamant, among other things, about not being called a liberal. A lefty of sorts, a left conservative he sometimes said, putting himself in a category with Pat Buchanan. But labels missed the point with Mailer. Dread, he said, was our 20th century condition. Psychologists wanted to treat dread as a repetition of infantile experiences of helplessness. Mailer said, the dread and anxiety felt by humanity should be seen as something more primitive and authentic namely the danger of losing some part or quality of our soul unless we act, and act dangerously. The two factors that he said that this great sense of dread was coming from are the atomic bomb and the Holocaust. They brought on new levels of dread. I mean, dread was there before that, of course, the First World War, the horrors of that war, and so on, the Second World War. But specifically, those are the two things. He talks about this in The White Negro, his great essay. It's the opening of it, that no one really could get a good night's sleep anymore with the horrors of the Holocaust and the horrors of the atomic bomb. Those coming right on top of each other in human life really created a break from all the generations that lived before us and put us in a a situation of great dread, which meant we had to take greater chances to overcome it. And we needed an adventurous president, somebody who was going to take on the problems instead of an incrementalist. He criticized Bill Clinton fiercely for being an incrementalist. Little of this, a little of that. That's his definition of a liberal. Let me be a little bit rude. Is it possible that Norman Mailer was 20th century American to the core? A writer named Lance Morrow thought so. He said that in his own ways, Norman Mailer embodied America's worst faults, self-indulgence, bullying, sense of entitlement, irrelevant belligerence, the obnoxious American self-importance that is a corrupted Emersonianism, Emerson without the sweetness, the calm, the brains. I think about this a great deal. Uh, for, for one thing, Norman Mailer was not a bully. He was an anti-bully. He might have had a night or two where he was less than right with a, with a gentleman or not, but he was not a bully, and anyone who knew him knew he was one of the most generous guys you're ever going to meet. But he was often accused of being obsessed with violence, of glorifying violence in his writing, in his, in his life. 
And the truth of the matter is, he was obsessed with violence because this country was founded on violence, because there is violence inherent within us and the lack of our roots. We see it every week now. There's a mass shooting, at least one a week. And this notion that we can put our heads in the, in the sand and pretend that we don't live in one of the most violent countries is crazy. We have to look at it. We have to explore the scary stuff. We have to understand what is this violence within us? What does it come from? How do we control it? Personally, he didn't like it at all. He said, there are times when it is necessary that happens in your life. But he said, that's not something that I'm looking for. I don't embrace it. I don't get a big kick out of violence. First of all, in his presence, there was nothing mm-hmm. of the bully about him. I met him first at the Senate hearings on Watergate, Sam Urban's hearings, and he was there like a humble reporter. Mm-hmm. And we talked. Mm -hmm. He was the most gracious, mannerly, refined presence. I was stunned. On the other hand, though, on this business of violence, he wrote about the March on Washington, the Martin Luther King speech event, that it should have had an edge of violence about it. This was desperately serious stuff, Mm -hmm. and it was being softened to the point of you know, he was missing something. Right, right. That, that, I, I agree with you. I, I take your point. Uh, he wanted it to be a little more edgy, a little stronger, a little more abrasive. That's what he wanted out there. He didn't want blood in the streets. I mean, John had a lot of arguments with him about what kind of protests should go on in the elections in the last two or three elections before he died. And he would say, no, we don't want a lot of violence. He saw what happened in Chicago in 1968. He was there watching the whole thing, watching the police riot, and he aborted. It sickened him. It wasn't something that he thought was a good thing. But he thought that perhaps that the black movement under Martin Luther King when he gave that speech in 63 was a little bit too toned down. All the black power brothers were not going to be allowed on there. Everybody had to be peace and harmony. He wanted to see more Mm. of the spirit of black life and black energies there, and he didn't really see it. They were a little too peaceful and calm. And I think that's the point he was trying to make. I mean, also I would say, in in, in accordance with his, his favorite line that one must grow or pay more for remaining the same. I think that when he was younger, he was trying to prove his own courage. No one wants to get into a fight, but he would provoke. He would go out there and he would get into fights, I think, because he had to convince himself that he was tough enough, that he could walk the walk, not just write the right. It's it's fascinating. At some points he wrote that you're in a fight suddenly, you didn't expect it, but it's important to stick with it even if you end up on the deck if you lose. You've got to lose, and you've got to take it. Better to lose than to run. Right. Well, actually, going back to RFK, the night he was assassinated, Norman came up with the idea for Maidstone, his third experimental film, which he shot in 68, uh, which is about a avant-garde film director named Norman T. Kingsley, who's making a semi-pornographic movie about a uh, male hmm. whorehouse, and he plays the madam where women come and get a man, and he's simultaneously running for president, and the secret network of spy (laughs) departments get together and say, you know what, this Kingsley guy could actually win. I think our best bet is assassination. And he came came up with this whole idea in a dream the night after RFK was assassinated. And so he purposefully created this, this 
chaotic film set where it was completely improvised. Half the people were trying to kill his character. Half the people were trying to save him. He had five different camera crews going around an island in Long Island. And um, at the end of it, he had not been killed. They came close. There was a few attempts, but he hadn't been killed. And Rip Torn knew that there was no ending to this movie unless Kingsley was assassinated. So after they had finished shooting... There was a few film canisters left over, and so uh, Penny Baker said, you know, do you want to get some some home movies, Norman? <laughs> and exhausted after five days of a, the craziest movie set I can imagine, and they're shooting home movies, and there's Rip Torn talking to a strange man. He takes out a hammer, and he charges, and he whacks Norman in the head with the hammer. And then he hits him again, and Norman realizes, he's trying to kill me. And the two of them get into what is perhaps the most vicious fight in film because it's real it's not choreographed norman bites through torn's ear blood's trickling from his head my brothers and sisters are little kids screaming and crying beverly his fourth wife is there whacking him in the head and pulling him apart but that all goes to your point though of at a certain moment violence comes upon you and Mm. if you are courageous and able to take it on then win or lose you're in a better position than if you have to run you know i've been reading a lot of mailer and your marvelous biography, Michael. Thank you. And I keep thinking, was ever a mind busier for longer periods of time than Norman Mailer's? And a lot of it contradicting itself. Yes, yes. We talk about Mailer all the time, and the stories come out in there, and they're great stories, and they usually him is out on the public stage doing something. The Maidstone story, a terrific story, very characteristic, wonderful. But you've got to remember that most of Norman's life as a professional person, as a working person, was spent in a little room which he went into every day. You don't write 40 books if you are. Mail is accused of being an alcoholic. He's accused of beating up people in bars. He's accused of all of these things. And of course, yeah, I can't say they didn't happen. They did happen, but they were 5% of his life. Most of his life was spent as a working writer. Mailer is the consummate American writer. Hardworking writer. Hardworking. He knew he had to get out to get experience. And so periodically, when he finished a book, usually he, you know, went out and had a good time and got into trouble and got into scrapes. And then he would go back to work again. If you look at the places he lived, he always lived, had a place in New York City. Then he had a place somewhere else, New Hampshire, Vermont, Provincetown for many years, Bucks County. He would go to those retreats, Stockbridge, Mass., where he had a house as well. He shuffled back and forth between the city and the country, between being a writer and being an activist, back and forth all of his life. Different frame on the varieties of Norman Mailer. What do you make of key friendships in his life or obsessions or connections? Jean Malaquet, the French but Eastern European intellectual. Muhammad Ali, we barely mentioned him. Tolstoy, who was a god. Picasso, whom he greatly admired and he identified with. Hemingway, the local god, so to speak. Sex, God, Jewishness. Christianity, he wrote Jesus' own story, let's remember, in the Gospel According to the Son, and he took it very, very seriously. With friends like these? (laughs) There's one other category, and that's uh, his friends on the right. Henry Kissinger, William Buckley. um, Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. 
Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. All very different relationships. I think he loved Buckley because he could handle Buckley. He wasn't afraid of Buckley at all. No, but they sparred pretty nicely. I mean, their, their letters back and forth are pretty funny. Uh, they sparred, and they got together a lot socially. Norman went sailing with him. Norman went to dinner with him. He was very fond of, of Buckley's wife. They were really quite chummy there, but they knew they always were going to disagree on things. They sharpened each other's ideas, mm. and I think that's where that's the real it. love was between them. They were perfect sparring partners, and if one of them could get one over on the other, there was no one they couldn't beat. The Kissinger thing is really interesting because he thought that Vietnam was the great destruction of his America, and Henry Kissinger was in the thick of it, obviously. They went to lunch at the Sans Souci. They seemed to have spent most of the time figuring out whether Norman could quote Kissinger and how that would be verified. But then he tortured himself with thinking, am I a traitor to humanity for even knowing this guy? Well, he thought Kissinger had a great sense of wit. Kissinger was an urbane witster, a smart guy, knew his way around Washington. Well, yeah, yeah, he with was the, with everybody in Washington at the time. He loved this social interaction. You know, I love listening to Norman, and I often feel, as you said, John, that he's talking to us. He's describing our world. He saw it. Chris, may I read a little passage from, feels like a nice, a nice lead-in to hear a little of uh, the man's voice himself. This is just a paragraph um, from his opening remarks, which is a combination of a piece he wrote in uh, 1963 and a piece in 2000 and a piece in 2006. However, you can't really tell what he was writing when because it feels like today. We, so great a democracy, have demonstrated already that we have little real comprehension of democracy itself. We don't seem to understand that it has to be built from the ground up, from the inner midnight will of the people who live in that country. No external power can offer you democracy as a gift. If you are not willing to die for your own idea of democracy, then you are not going to have one. But democracy, however, is not an antibiotic to be injected into a polluted foreign body. It is not a magical serum. Rather, democracy is a grace. In its ideal state, it is noble. In practice, in countries that have lived through decades and centuries of strife and revolution and the slow elaboration of safeguards and traditions, democracy becomes a political condition which can often withstand the corruptions and excessive power-seeking of enough humans to remain viable as a good society. It is never routine, never automatic. Like each human being, Democracy is always growing into more or less. Each generation must be alert to the dangers that threaten democracy as directly as each human being who wishes to be good must learn how to survive in the labyrinths of envy, greed, and the confusions of moral judgment. Democracy, by the nature of its moral assumptions, has to grow in moral depth or commence to deteriorate. So the constant danger that besets it is the downward pull of fascism. In all of us, there is not only a love of freedom, but a wretchedness of spirit that can look for its opposite, as identified with the notion of order and control from above. In this way, this metaphor of democracy being like a human being and having two sides to it kind of gets to the core, I think, of his fundamental philosophy. 
and mm-hmm. how one should approach a problem. John Buffalo Meadow, that line struck me as I read it. The whole notion that everybody's worried about democracy, how to, can we spread it, can we keep it? He defines it as that public condition that cannot be overwhelmed by greed, and ours may have been, or by power lust, by a sort of Trumpian figure. That's deep. But it comes back to my question. I love listening to this man speaking to our condition, but I'm also wondering which of the several Norman Mailers we're talking about here. Five, for example. There's the writer who wanted desperately all his life to be greater than Hemingway, and was. Second, the reform mayor of New York City, sort of Ralph Nader in office, sweet Sundays, nothing works, everybody's got a day off, farmer's markets, that kind of thing. Ralph Nader, but a lot more fun, as I say. Then three, the magisterial Tolstoy, who wanted to be Dostoevsky, or the underground man Dostoevsky, who wanted to be Tolstoy. That argument seems to be going on in Norman Mailer. Four, there's the New York hipster of the 1950s who wrote, as you say, The White Negro, and had his steadiest, longest literary and personal friendship with James Baldwin. And five, the real Casanova with Don Giovanni. Or perhaps six, the very definition of narcissistic celebrity. A mix of all the goals. Who are we listening to? Well, you know, there was a movie made back in the 60s. Will the real Norman Mailer please stand up? I didn't even know that. I'm infatuated with Norman Mailer, the writer, the man of words, some of them spoken without a script in front of him. For example, the Mailer who covered Muhammad Ali's rumble in the jungle against George Foreman, 1974. He covered the fight for Playboy and then published it as a book, The Fight, a remarkable book. But then he narrated it, his own thinking, in the movie called When We Were Kings. And to my mind, there's an electrifying moment. I want us all to hear it. When Muhammad Ali comes back after the first round, he's thrown a lot of right-hand leads, and Norman Mailer knew all about right-hand leads, but he's scared. And Norman Mailer was the only writer who had the nerve to say, the man is scared. He has felt the foreman punching power. Here's what he says. Bell rang. Ollie went back to the corner. He finally, the nightmare he'd been awaiting in the ring had finally come to visit him. He was in the ring with a man he could not dominate, who was stronger than him, who was not afraid of him, who was going to try to knock him out, and who punched harder than Ollie could punch. And this man was determined and unstoppable. And Ollie had a look on his face that I'll never forget. It's the only time I ever saw fear in Ollie's eyes. Ollie looked as if he looked into himself and said, all right, this is the moment. This is what you've been waiting for. This is that hour. They were wonderful in praising each other for their oppositions. And at the same time, they would also make fun of each other. Ali would make jokes when Norman had to drop out of jogging with him when they were jogging along the, the road in, in, uh, in the Congo. And Norman used to make fun of told Ali that his verses weren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Norman wrote with an air of seriousness that boxers, heavyweights, were in the same business as writers. Yes. That secretly they hated what they were doing. 
right. Mm. Yeah. It was a painful, difficult job. It's a lonely, lonely job. Lonely. Very, very lonely. Yeah, he used the metaphor of boxing for being a writer. You have right. to go alone in the room. You you put yourself through all this punishment. You have to sit in a chair. You get squeeze more words out of your yeah. body. Squeeze he hated more it. words yeah. out of your body. And it was the same thing to going down and jogging when you didn't feel like it and going in the ring and sparring and working out and hitting the big bag. It was a miserable existence. It's really tough to do it. And so he saw great parallels between being a writer and being a boxer and mm. uh, elaborated on them for his, you know, the, the length of his career almost. And the courage of facing down that terrifying blank white page. But it's the same Norman Mailer who saw fear in the face of Muhammad Ali, who saw dread and fear in that Democratic convention that nominated JFK because he knew that what the bosses and the delegates, most of them wanted was a controllable, predictable candidate. And they had something very, very different in John F. Kennedy. Here's what he observed when most of the world didn't know John Kennedy very well. Mailer says, Kennedy's most characteristic quality, as Mailer observed him, is the remote and private air of a man who has traversed some lonely terrain of experience, of loss and gain, of nearness to death, which leaves him isolated from the mass of others. The man who, in the wreckage of his PT-109, pulled his mate McMahon for three miles with a belt in John Kennedy's mouth. A man who used his rage to save a life. Miller speaks about the wisdom of a man who senses death within him and gambles that he can cure it by risking his life. It is the therapy of the instinct and who is so wise as to call it irrational? He concludes, it is not so very many men who had the apocalyptic sense that heroism was the first doctor. Great passage. Mm. Wonderful passage. You know, he applied that same metaphor of heroism being the first medicine in the medicine chest for victory uh, to Hemingway when he wrote about Hemingway putting the shotgun in his mouth and mm. not so much to desire to kill himself, but to see how close he could get oh, to, man, to squeezing the trigger. And he would do that and squeeze it a little bit, put it down, and dread would be put off right. for a period of time. And then when he felt dread coming back again, he put the gun in again. And this is Mailer's surmise that Hemingway did this. We don't know that. But it really captures exactly what you're saying there. And then finally one day, Hemingway squeezed a little bit too hard and boom, it was gone. It was all over. But he was tempting death, daring death, like standing on a ledge and thinking about jumping and then coming back in. It was the same kind of thing. Mm. And It's an it, astonishing it was, passage, Michael. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It, yeah. it, it was a, something like a no man's land between mm -hmm. uh, at a tension in the trigger between pulling it and not. He surmised that Hemingway liked to play there, in effect. Yeah. Has that ever been confirmed or is that pure Mailer imagination? I think it's Mailer imagination. There's no way to prove it or disprove it. And and you know, Mailer himself often starting in the in the early nineteen sixties, whenever he went to a big city, he would find, especially San Francisco, he'd find all these ledges and edges that he could walk around that he could actually test his own ability to do this. The building uh, in New York City that has a parapet around it on Park Avenue, the Waldorf Towers, which is written about in an American dream. And in that book, 
Rojak walks around the parapet. Well, you know, I did some research on that, and I talked to the, the real estate woman who represented the building, and I asked her about the parapet. And I know that Mailer must have visited that building, and I suspect he might have walked that parapet himself. Right. Because his description was so exactly accurate to what it looks like. Oh, I think he, he absolutely walked the parapets. Yeah. And even as late as, you know, the late 80s, he was going out to L.A. to visit um, his friend and colleague, uh, Rudy Langless, who is a producer, mm. an iconic producer. He's actually producing the dramatic series that uh, Mike and I are doing with James Gray. They, I think they were doing a Henry Miller movie at the mm. time. Uh, Norman was uh, hired to write it, and so he comes out, and uh, they're going to meet with the producers and the director and all of this, and um, Rudy picks him up at the airport, and they have a few drinks, and Rudy takes him back to the hotel, and Rudy goes to the bathroom, and then he comes out, and he sees that Norman is standing on the edge of the balcony, <laughs> on the oh, other wow. side of the rail, walking back and forth. And Rudy says, oh, shit, what am I going to do? He says, uh, Norman, you, know, you want to come down? And Norman looks at him and he goes, I know what you're thinking. Hmm. And Rudy says, what am I thinking, Norman? He says, you're thinking, there goes my movie. <laughs> <laughs> And he climbed down. (laughs) Yeah, he did a lot of parapet walking. He did it in Africa when the fight was going on. Before the fight, uh, he went out and had a few drinks and then went back and was very worried about whether Ali was going to be win or not. And he got up and he, as an act of propitiation of evil forces, he walked around the balcony there. And then the next morning he woke up, he said, oh, my God, what the hell am I doing, you know? Mm. So it wasn't that he did it and it didn't bother him. It bothered him to do that. It was scary to do it. He was advancing into his fear, and that's what he was trying to say about Hemingway as well. So he did that an awful lot. I mean, not, he stopped doing it after a while when he uh, he wasn't so, too steady on his pins. But as a younger man, it was it was pretty common. Yeah, he had, he had mellowed out quite a bit by the time I came around. I got a very different father than my other siblings. I got less time with him, but in a way he was just more present and, and ready to embrace the kind of time that he wanted to put into being a dad. Before we're done, I want to come back to Vietnam, which he thought was the critical event in compromising the idea of this country. And he wrote about it with incredible daring and imagination and power to this moment. He said at Berkeley in 1965, of course, a very hot anti-war audience, but he said, the great fear that lies upon America is not that Lyndon Johnson is privately close to insanity so much as that he is the expression of the near insanity of most of us. And his need for action is America's need for action. Not brave action, but action, any kind of action any move to get the motors going. Then this sentence, a future death of the spirit lies close and heavy upon American life, a cancerous emptiness at the center, which calls for a circus. And then he made this amazing (laughs) proposal. If we're going to have a war with the Viet Cong, says Norman Mailer, let it be a war of foot soldier against foot soldier. First, call off the Air Force Let us win man-to-man or lose man-to-man, but let us cease pulverizing people whose faces we have not seen. That's such a great example of his feeling about bullies and how it was as if we were the rich kid bully in that war beating up on the poor kids. And, you know, this, this goes down to one of his other 
fundamentals of what's necessary to preserve a democracy, and that's not too much of a disparity between the top and the bottom. We say there's nobody like him today, but but is there? I keep wondering who has played his role today. Don DeLillo. Good candidate. Zadie Smith, perhaps. Zadie Smith. Pico Iyer says Dave Eggers. I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. Mark Twain, possibly. My favorite example is Victor Hugo in Les Miserables. He went to Waterloo and walked all over that battlefield trying to figure out why Napoleon lost. That's that's Mailer-esque. But he was also... This is Victor Hugo. He was tracking France's soul. He believed in France like nothing else. In the revolution in in the middle of the 19th century, but in the 18th century too, he thought France was the world. He ended up saying it wasn't because the Prussians didn't get to Waterloo in time to help the French. It was that God was tired of Napoleon. It was time to have a new century and a new new leader. Bye-bye, Napoleon. You're going down at Waterloo. But that's a sort of Mailer-esque yes. way to think of a nation. Hmm. And when Victor Hugo died, I believe that there was over a million people at his funeral. It was estimated to be the largest gathering of human beings in European history that's amazing. to that day. I never heard that, but it sounds right. A million people attended his funeral when they brought his casket down the uh, down the main drag in Paris. He was Paris. He thought he was Paris. Yes. He thought he was France. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as as someone who had his finger on the pulse of a nation, yeah, very Mailer-esque he was. Gentlemen, it's been fun for me for weeks now to re-educate myself in the writings of Norman Mailer, and it's a great pleasure to hear you guys talk about him. Thank you, John Buffalo Mailer and J. Michael Lennon, author of Norman Mailer, A Double Life. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. 